0: I'm Bayo, and this is the LSQ Podcast.
1: I can't believe I've known Chris Bayo for 15 years. Crazy. And the fact that it took us this long to have this conversation, well, I'm just glad we finally got to. I learned so many fun facts about young Bayo. And we got to talk about one of our favorite topics, sex in the city. How are the sex in the city ladies like the Beatles? Well, we'll discuss that and more in LSQ episode 57. Hi, I'm Jenny LSQ. Thanks for pressing play. It's a it's a strange and interesting day historically because we're connecting on inauguration day, uh, January twentieth, twenty twenty one, and I'm just going to go ahead and say I feel huge relief we made it, and uh, you know there's something a little different in the air today. I think
0: it was uh yeah I mean I, I got up and watched um you know like about an hour of the inauguration, and I, I did feel it a bit in the immediate aftermath of the election, like, this kind of, like, weight that had been there, that, you know, the kind of, like, instability, the fact that a maniac was head of the government that had been, you know, at the very best of times, a kind of, like, low-simmering anxiety. That went away for a couple days after the election, but then it kind of came back as stuff was getting crazy, and I I kind of underestimated how relieved I I would feel when um, the, like power had been switched when you know someone new came into the office of the presidency so i jenny am in a good fucking mood today as we talk together awesome
1: i want to right from jump talk about something not the kind of thing i usually talk about on this podcast but we have some common interests outside of music and so i do have to ask how you feel about no samantha for the sex in the city reunion any thoughts or feelings on that
0: you know, I, I was—I actually—I meant to look this up. First off, it's been—it's just great. Like I've been doing interviews pretty regularly since the year turned over, so this is like my third week of having a pretty packed interview schedule. But this is the very first question I've gotten about *Sex and the City*, which is arguably one of the most important topics that I could discuss with anybody. Um, so I appreciate that. And as you've alluded to, we are part of a since dormant *Sex and the City* trivia team. But I, I had listened to uh, this super kind of, like, long-form podcast in, like, the end of 2018. I really I, – I'm going to – I never do this during interviews, but it's such a good podcast that I'm going to have to look it up on my phone while I talk to you. Yes. N- please, Yeah, please do. I want to give a recommendation yeah, to the people. It, this is, like, um, the best – and it's, like, five hours – okay, <laughs> Uh, it, it's like five hours on the history of Sex and the City, um, and the the podcast is called Origins. Um, and like, it's they do a, a different seasons on a different TV show. The first season was on Curb Your Enthusiasm, which I thought that season was okay. But the Sex and the City season is just like absolute masterclass, one of the best podcasts I've ever listened to. And just like you get to sort of like peer behind the curtain of this incredibly iconic show. I'm I'm a big fan of Sex and the City. It got me through kind of like a dark time when I was 18, just because my parents had the DVDs in our basement. So I just like spent like weeks plowing through Sex in the City episodes. And I just I love the show. Um, But so this podcast, it really gave just like a long, particularly in the last episode, kind of like a long breakdown of how they tried to make a Sex in the City 3 movie. And that, you know, (laughs) negotiations kind of fell apart and that Kim Cattrall uh, did not want to be a part of it. And, and you know, I think it can be tough to think about the fact that business is intertwined with art. Every, like, public artist, every public facing artist, there is, like, a, a business side to it. And sometimes when you, like, really think about it or wrap your head around it, it's, like, a bit unseemly. You just think, like, Sex and the City, it's just, you know, fucking great writing, great <laughs> acting. Everybody's just showing up. Everybody's getting along. There's, like, no simmering tension. And I will say in Kim Cattrall's defense, and, and Jenny, we have actually watched side by side the first two <laughs> Sex and the City movies. And did the world need a follow-up after Sex and the City 2? I, I think that we would, as two big fans, would say absolutely not. Please no. <laughs> a- apparently the script for Sex and the City 3 was, like, great michael patrick king who was the showrunner starting with the third season he was like oh this is just like a beautiful script sarah jessica parker loved the script but there were all these negotiations and kim cattrall didn't want to be a part of it and so it fell apart and like everybody is diplomatic but they kind of talk around the fact that kim cattrall like essentially wanted a lot more money and There was just, like, this kind of, like, falling out between everybody. So, like, listening to this podcast and when I talk about it being, like, unseemly, it was kind of, like, hearing about, like, this couple that you love, this, like, couple that you (laughs) hang out with all the time. Maybe they were together for ten years. You'd go to dinner together. You'd see each other at parties. And then they break up. And you get, like, but, like, having, like, an inside window into what happened and why that relationship broke up. So... It was. It's. It was. It's depressing. It's sad. You know. The they're like. Uh. It's like the Beatles. You yeah, know. It's, like like
1: <laughs> it's like by Let It Be. You know. It's, what it's a... the
0: it's the Beatles of of you know nineties and two thousands uh, HBO yeah. TV shows. And so the fact that Kim Cattrall didn't want to be a part of it and that everybody else wanted to push along, I'm gonna give it a chance. You know the experience of doing the Sex in the City trivia team and
1: also just uh, as I've gotten to know you better and and see the way your fanhoods kind of play out, <laughs> whether, you know what I mean? Whether it's the burnt thing, <laughs> for instance, or any number of other um, deeply personal memes for you specifically. When did that kind of thing start for you? What was the first thing like that, that as a human you became fixated on in, in a way that made so much sense to you?
0: Oh, God. I, I think when you, like share this weird piece of cultural ephemera with someone else it becomes this kind of like secret language and so the example that you bring up is the movie Burnt which I saw under very like kind of weird circumstances and thought the movie was fucking insane and then just like found myself on an email chain with two friends we were talking about something else and a friend brought up that he had watched Burnt on a plane and then we just started emailing each other about Burnt and we couldn't stop talking about that movie because it's an insane movie and like then it kind of just became this joke and then I have like a WhatsApp group with like eight other people where we just still talk about Burnt there there was like I got messages on my phone maybe 20 minutes before I got on with you about the 2015 failed Bradley Cooper Bad Boy Chef feature Burnt and like it is and I'll whatever I'll put like Instagram stories up about it and like tweets and like it's just nobody knows what the fuck I'm talking about very few people I think have seen Burnt but like it it ends up taking up this like big place in my mind and I don't know you just there'll be like examples when I think back and I can't even really remember the jokes but like just like watching a bad movie at like a friend's house and like picking out lines and like just making like jokes about it I'm trying to remember anything like like super super specific
1: i guess i also just mean more generally like the, the the kind of joy that you get out of like you know just digging into something i mean it's what what you it's being a nerd it, you know it's yeah, what yeah, it is ultimately where you're just hyper into something to a point that for other people might be uncomfortable but you're <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's yeah. how into it i am i don't care as a kid, what was the first thing that you made you feel like? I just need more of this. This is so exciting to me.
0: Yeah, and um, I guess okay. I think about like my friends who have kids and stuff like that. Um, and almost like uniformly, when their kids are like two or three years old, they'll tell me that their child is like obsessed with this one movie and just like want to watch the same movie every single day. And I think there's something kind of like naturally childlike about getting obsessive about something. I think it's like kind of like innate to being human when I when I think about it in, in terms of like seeing it through, you know, all my friends' kids. So I think that there can be like a, a childlike joy to preserving that, you know, now I'm, I'm 36 years old, but like still being obsessive about some random obscure thing so you know things like like teenage mutant ninja turtles when i was a kid or like i mean i was obsessed with bohemian rhapsody when i was seven years old just wanted to listen to bohemian rhapsody on loop i mean even now if i like really get into a song i can listen to the same song for like three or four hours and i think that like there just is this this sort of like yeah just just childlike joy in in getting obsessed with one thing or like you know one one like work of art so going back to Bohemian
1: Rhapsody for a minute, then as a as a little dude being obsessed with that song, there's obviously cartoonish elements to it in, in addition to the musicality. But did
0: that develop into your early music taste? Yeah, definitely. I mean, it would have just been like trickle down stuff from um, my parents, my dad. Like I, I know a lot of people when they when they have kids, they could, like my my one of my uncles unbelievable record collection and like it stops you know i've he let me take a bunch of records from it i've got like you know early pressings of can records just like an absolutely like impeccable um record collection he went to law school in like 1982 there's like it just stops right there and then like he had kids (laughs) after that just like they're, they're like for um a lot of people, you know, you hit a certain age and you just, like, are not actively following new music. Um, but my my dad was very much not that way, and he, like, would um, always, you know, he's a true Stone Cold Columbia househead, just, like, and also would, like, would read Spin obsessively. And, like, I even have memories because I, like, I didn't like curse words when I was really young, and so my dad would, like, read Spin and, like, Get a black ink and just blot out the curse words for me. It was like just like insane to think about, but like really, really sweet. But so he would always bring home records, bring home things that he was interested in, and it like always ran a wide gamut. But like Bohemian Rhapsody would be the first thing that I can just remember, like just being in the car and just being like, I love this song. I just want to hear this song over and over and over again. And like, you know, there would be Talking Heads, there'd be plenty of other, like, I mean, my dad's favorite musician. This Jimi Hendrix. We would listen to so much Jimi Hendrix. But at the same time, he would, like... You know, I'd be 10 years old when he would have bought his first Guided by Voices record, and we would have had that on in the house. And just, like, kind of, like, always having music uh, around in the house, like, reading the Saturday or Sunday paper. That was kind of just how I grew up. So there wasn't, like, one sort of, like, defined sensibility. You know, my dad would buy, like, Tribe Called Quest. My dad would buy Green Day. Just, like, whatever were, like, kind of, like, big albums at that time. And so I just, you know, would... Listen to a fairly wide like gamut for like a seven, eight, nine, ten year old um and like how it trickles down later when I started playing music is kind of hard to say. but it was um it definitely is like a huge reason why I'm a musician today.
1: when did you start to see music as something that you
0: might do and and be interested in playing it as opposed to just enjoying it always being around? I started getting piano lessons when I would have been like nine or ten years old. um, and I didn't actively really want to but my mom like kind of made me and signed me up and uh uh, thank you mom you changed my life but I, I really took to it I really liked playing and kind of at the end of the first year my teacher at the time told my mom that he thought I could like maybe someday be a professional musician and like I don't know hearing that as a 10 year old is kind of like all you need if you're like super super into playing music and then your teacher thinks you like have what it takes to then play music that's like when i just think back and of like an early affirmation that's the one in my head like like hearing that at 10 years old that like it was possible and that definitely made me like take it even more serious and 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 pursue it more i guess
1: wow yeah i mean that's that that's a good boost and so did you, yeah, did you start practicing more seriously? And when, and when did the idea of, of writing songs on your own begin?
0: I, like, I, I played piano for another couple years, and then I would have gotten a guitar for Christmas when I was 12. But I I, I didn't really, like, pick it up in the first year and a half. Um, for whatever reason, I don't even know why. I think I was probably just, like, more focused on, on piano at that time. But then once I picked it up took lessons for maybe a year uh i just like knew i wanted to play so i would you know i would play in my friend brian's attic we would like cover nirvana songs you know like fucking come as you are i'm very curious to people who like pick up guitar now how often like come as you are is that first song that you play i wonder if it's still that i mean it was it was funny i know that like Steve Lacey had told Ezra that A Punk was the first song he learned on guitar, which just like blew my fucking mind in general. But like I guess some people maybe listened like learn A Punk as their first song on guitar now, which is mind blowing. For me that version was like was definitely come as you are. Um so just playing with my friend Brian and then like we had a band, started writing we, we covered so many songs. Um and then we started I started writing songs like shortly thereafter. Um, my original, my first song was, like, a funk instrumental called Fat Boy Craving, uh, which is, just like, such a, it's, like, the kind of song you call, like, a, when you're, like, 13 years old. But I will say, and I, I'm just talking through this with you, um, and I, I still remember, like, what the guitar riff was to it. Um, but, like, uh, on this record, the, like, the first song, like, the back half, I would say, has, like, a lot of funk guitar, and I hadn't really thought of it this way, but it's, like, my version maybe of, like uh tapping into the first song that i wrote
1: <laughs> did would you when did you, i mean thirteen is super young but but at what point did you start like going to shows or like identifying with you know music as being like I love music I'm that
0: kid yeah we i mean the like way earlier definitely um my family would go like every summer i i grew up in Westchester New York every summer we'd go to like at least five shows at jones beach that was like the the kind of like family thing just I, I, and i saw so many like like a wide gamut i would have seen everything from like lenny kravitz to hootie and the blowfish to steely dan to just like like to the cranberries just like so many um the
1: columbia house the, yeah the exactly columbia columbia house 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 concert columbia house and <laughs> concert
0: version just like every summer at jones beach and you know uh, the very first concert i went to was when i was nine years old it was um it was a really killer triple bill it was the first band was cracker the second band was gin blossoms and then the headliner was spin doctors and wow the first song that cracker played it's it's one off their second record i think that's kind of like it's not it's on the record with get on this like um it's i like i've listened to that record like maybe a couple years ago i'm gonna probably listen to it later today after it came up but like they opened with a song off that, and like just hearing a kick drum, like hearing a a drummer's bass drum through a sound system and feeling it in your chest, it's just this immediate like physical thing, and it, and it's a physical thing in a way that listening to any listening to any like recorded music on your house on like you know average house speakers, it, it can never achieve that. And so, I just knew right away. I fucking I love going to concerts. I love this feeling. I love like the the, the physicality of it. It was very nice or, or, or something that was very fun for me. This, this came up in conversation maybe like five years ago. Um, but this guy named Trey, who's sometimes the Strokes tour manager, he tour managed like, uh, Sleigh Bells, who are friends of mine. But he, he told me that he worked on that tour. I think maybe he was working in catering at that time. So it was very, very exciting to get a little bit of, um, sort of like gossip, uh, of what was going on and the spin doctors on this tour uh you know like twenty five years later or whatever were when...
1: they were they fighting like our sex in the city ladies, or did they all yes,
0: along? yes um and, and I, I it's I think they're back to i don't know i haven't followed the spin Doctors member situation, but it seemed like the they were the situation was fraying with uh, the guitar player and the guitar player was mostly like just hanging out with the crew and then the guitar player subsequently left uh the band after that tour so it was kind of like a yeah it was very much like a sex in the city like contract negotiations in 2016 or whatever what was the thing
1: that you and your dad like both loved together the most of the music that that's that somehow overlapped do you have a shared favorite with him I or mean, like a concert it's... that you that
0: you that was a, a moment between the two of you well definitely like uh Nirvana just we both were like this shit is fucking incredible. Um, we were both like very, very sad when Kurt died. I remember I had like a, I played chess as a kid and like driving home from a chess tournament, just listening to in utero in the family car, just being like super sad. Those are kind of like ones that I, I share. I mean, yeah, there were so many shows that we went to and and so many that we really liked. Yeah. I mean, I remember seeing garbage at Roseland with him and just like, when they were touring their second record, so I would have been a little older, like twelve or thirteen. But the show was just awesome, just like great, great show. um And we like man, both. but I
1: can't help but think about the Nirvana thing because you would have been how old were you? I mean, that must I would have been, been like... like eleven, maybe
0: like 11. eleven. Yeah, still 90... kind of well, a hard no, maybe... concept to
1: understand a bit. Suicide. No, I would have been nine. I would have been nine. Yeah. Did you – do you remember no understanding – did you understand what had happened?
0: Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And we – like I watched, we had MTV on, like, just on loop. I just remember Kurt Loder, like, reporting on it and stuff like that. And, uh, I mean, it probably was – I mean, it was the first major, like, it contributed to my understanding of suicide. There's absolutely no question of that. I mean, I like – I was – I'm older than you, and
1: I was working my part-time job at a real estate office – I was in college and, uh, I had to go home from work. I was so upset that day, you know, I was just like, I tried to, I tried to continue. And then I was like, I gotta go. I can't do this. And what about just like more kind of indie leaning music scene? Did you, you know, as you got older and toward college start like going to, you know, gigs at, at Mercury
0: Lounge and that kind of stuff? Yeah, definitely. I even, I would go to like punk shows at Newton Factory in high school. Um, and I would, um. I got to I played Knitting Factory once in high school, which was a like incredible like fun, exciting achievement for me. Like it was like one of the highlights of of high school. But yeah, I would go and, and I did college radio, so you know we would bring bands and, and book them. There would be so much. I mean, I loved uh, the band Akron Family. I would I would go see them whenever they played in town. I saw them at Knitting Factory a bunch. WBAR was the radio station I did and. Um, they would have played a show uh at the west end which was kind of like a notorious i would i don't think i'm being unkind and calling it a broey uh bar like by by columbia where i went to school um but you know we would put on shows at the basement and like just seeing yeah like really really good and interesting um musical ideas expressed in like a sweaty basement with like 50 other people and just like incredible playing it was i mean it was awesome i was like a getting to go to school in the city as a music obsessive yeah it was like the dream
1: what do you remember about when you first met the other vampire weekend guys and and how quickly did you move into talking about playing music together it was
0: very like happenstance in the sense that my my roommate my freshman year of college gabe adoy who's like one of my best friends on the planet he had been an extra in a production of Romeo and Juliet in at school. And two of the other extras were Ezra and Rostam. And so there was this dorm at Columbia called Ruggles that essentially like based on, I mean, it's all, it's, it really is like so coincidental when you, when I like break it down in my head that like it's put me on this, this path in life. But you know certain dorms you need like the way the rooms are laid out they'll be like three doubles and two singles right and so you need to assemble a group of people where six people are okay with having a roommate so that way the two people can have their singles so usually the it ends up being like an upper class person like up and I don't I don't mean that in the class system I mean yeah. someone who's a year here above you or whatever and then someone you know you need the six people to be younger so uh Ezra had asked Gabe to kind of like assemble the like six people who would be the the like lower classmen in this dorm and so uh, whatever we just like you end up like going to this certain place where the housing lottery is and you sign a paper that would have been like the first time I met Ezra but like I I thought he was cool like and, and then kind of shortly thereafter maybe like a week later there was this thing called collision at the end of the year at Columbia where like All these like artists, people in the art program would like hang their paintings. It would be like in a kind of like remote area of Brooklyn, and then like musicians would perform. And my friend, another friend of mine from college who's in my year, uh, Eric Lindman, was like playing with Ezra and his band Lome Run, which uh, you're familiar with, certainly, um, having known us now for whatever 14 years or however many (laughs) years it's been. But that was Ezra's rap group that um did a lot of production work for and and chris thompson played guitar in and my friend eric was playing i think it was the only time he did it like he he played some like electronic music on the side like making like you know blips or whatever out of his keyboard but i just got there and i saw their last song right when i walked in and i was just like this is so fucking fun this is like such a like joyful approach to music it's not like dour self-serious it's like people just like having a really good time playing music and the music's really good it's not like it's just really good on top of everything else and i just like i don't know i i really like that and so i started you know I, I was living with ezra um and then i would just start going to their shows kind of like all the time when they played around campus because i like really really enjoyed it. and you know raw would be there and i would just kind of get to know them um at the same time like when I first got to college I thought I would like play in a band and like continue writing music and that didn't really happen in my first year I just I didn't really meet anybody that I would play with I didn't like feel super driven by by sophomore year I just like brought my bass guitar to school I was more a guitar player before that but I just brought my bass because I was like you know maybe there'll be an opportunity um everybody wants to play guitar. You're like a little bit more uh, useful if you can play bass, because that's a slot that you need in a band. So I just, I had a bass and, you know, Ezra would have heard me practicing uh, down the hall. And um, I don't know, like a year later when he was putting the band together, he asked if um, I would play bass uh, at Ding Dong Lounge on 107th Street in Columbus one night. And uh, I said yes, and now I'm here. You know, obviously,
1: I met you not that long after this story, and um, I remember, just like you guys were so young, when we met up for the first time at Mercury Lounge, or at Library Bar.
0: Yes. Hell yeah. Oh, yeah. That's, uh, I didn't remember where I exactly was. Exactly.
1: Yeah, and we did an interview for Rolling Stone in the in the back booth of Library Bar, and then you played a show at Mercury Lounge that was one of... I mean, and then I just, you know, would come see you guys play all the fucking time, and... It's interesting, you know, obviously, as you say, it's, it's like you can look at these things and it's like, here we are now, you know, almost 15 years later and uh, everything that's happened has happened. But it sounds like when we look back at this together, yeah, you weren't really expecting any of this. I mean, obviously you had spent your your life and your childhood and teenage years, like, getting more proficient at playing all of the instruments and, like, you really seriously loved music, but you were in a good school and you were probably thinking about a, a career in something, right? Or did you have any ideas at that point about a profession you might go yeah, into?
0: Yeah, definitely. I mean, I, I I will say if you'd asked me at 16 if there was anything I could do with my life, it would be to play music. But by the time I got to college, I was like, all right, it's not really going to happen for me. That's fine. There's like plenty of other things. I um I was going to do two years of with Teach for America. I had like accepted a job kind of before um we got a record deal. I felt a little bit bad when I told them. It, it was early enough that I don't think I ended up depriving anyone of a spot of having a teacher in the program but um I I ended up telling them I I can't take it because uh I'm going on tour I took the LSAT my senior year I don't know um if I ultimately would have wanted to be a lawyer or like liked being a lawyer um but it was something that I at least entertained but no it it, it, you're right when you say it, it kind of like It it kind of just happened, and and it it really did. And and I think that, like, in a way, the fact that it happened without me, like, being um, insanely, like, aggressive about it or, like, just, like, a maniac, like, I have to pursue it, it, it's, like, kind of a good way to be. And, And I think about how we had this very first band practice, and there was this kind of vision of, like, having a horn section, adding a bunch of people, and, like, at the end of that first practice... I think Rostam was the one who said, you know, maybe it should just be the four of us. This feels really good. And, like, I agree. It, it, when, if it feels really good, it feels really natural. You're not pushing anything um, as, like, a baseline. That's, like, that's kind of, like, a great way to start in, like, work and, and in your life. So, um, I don't know. The fact that it felt good, felt right has me, you know, I've, I've, I've never questioned since then being a musician. It's like I'm not, yeah, it's uh, it's funny to think about, I guess.
1: Do you think that um, adapting what you had been doing before that with songwriting and, and with playing music into, you know, when you were still young and impressionable as a musician and songwriter, like into the Vampire Weekend structure, like did it change your approach to your own songwriting or to what kind of music feels good and right to play?
0: Um. I would say that you know I came to college and then I didn't write a song for like eight years like a song song so um maybe nine years I, I just I, I I guess I just mean sort of the
1: the larger kind of lessons of uh you know finding your own self as a yeah. musician within the context of vampire yeah yeah
0: definitely and I will say it was like immediately very different because I had been a songwriter in my band I had been the one who like was kind of running the show and having done that in, in high school and then playing in a band where uh, I'm the bass player, I'm trying to like do the absolute best I can to help other people for fulfill their vision. Like being on the other side of that, it gave me like respect, more respect for both sides of that equation. And so, you know, just trying to write the best bass line I can, trying to serve the song to the best of my ability was something very, very new for me. But, um, I I loved it I, I, I do and I, I think that like having a flexibility to work on music in, in different capacities like it, it, it goes toward like maybe it's related to that kind of openness and like easy goingness with like listening to a bunch of different genres of music from the time I was seven years old I, I don't know Um, but I just I've, I've always loved playing in whatever whatever form it takes so um, learning how to best fulfill someone else's songwriting vision, it changed me completely. Absolutely.
1: I'm sure we talked about this when you put out the names back in 2015. And when you mention it, I'm reminded that, yeah, okay, I knew this. But it does, again, with time passing, it it does seem interesting that that was an experience, if I'm remembering correctly now as we talk about it, of starting again to write songs on your own and also of kind of finding your singing voice and just figuring out what 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 it should all sound like and writing that batch of songs and now as we're talking on the cusp of the follow-up album to that dead hand control you know i can't help but wonder yeah did that really open a port like you know looking back now and thinking how did you go eight years without writing songs it does seem to be something that is is very satisfying for you
0: yeah it just i i don't no the 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 reason i guess is that i was doing other things with that yeah. time yeah. and i was not like driven to do it um and i think that uh to write a song it should be like you have to do it that that should be the place the starting point of any time you write a piece of music and so i don't know i just i i found that hunkering down i just i i had these songs all of a sudden i i like didn't i didn't write You know, I made, like, some electronic music. I I wrote some music, but, like, in terms of writing a song with lyrics and singing, I didn't do it. And then all of a sudden, you, like, turn the faucet, and it's, like, all I wanted to do, you know, starting in maybe, like, 2013, for the most part. That was when I, like, started the real, like, main work, a little bit, kind of like After Modern Vampires, of working on that first record. And um, we... The first three Vampire Weekend records were just, like, back-to-back-to-back, and we would go on these insane tours, like, and I'm not, this is not a complaint, it was, like, awesome and really, really fun, but, you know, you'd be gone from home for seven and a half weeks, and then, like, when I'd come home, the first thing I'd want to do was not play music, you know, I just I just did that, it, like, had been such a dominating force in, in my life, and, and so, when things were, like, kind of, like, slowing down, modern vampires, like, Um, that, That was when I was like, okay, sitting at home, writing chords, writing lyrics, trying to sing, this is like fun for me. This is what I want to be doing.
1: And I mean, how intuitively, like the sort of figuring out what, okay, you were an established person and you had an established sound as the bass player in Vampire Weekend, like how intuitively versus uh very deliberately did you figure out okay what does bayo sound like what does bayo sound like at this point 8 years into being in this in this well-known um uh, familiar band
0: um I, I would say it was fairly um starting from a place of deliberateness and then along the way using a lot of intuition to get there so you have like this idea these overarching themes you have certain sounds and then that's like that initial kind of like bursts of inspiration that ends up being the framework that you work in and then you're kind of like coloring in the lines or like solving the puzzle from there on if i can use as many cliched metaphors what were
1: yeah what were the what were on that first group of songs what were the ones that kind of helped you figure it out i mean i
0: just with that first record i wanted something that i mean i love electronic music um i i i love DJing and I had been doing it like kind of concurrently with, with Vampire Weekend and I put out a couple EPs of electronic music and at the time I'm you know a huge fan of uh people like the Chemical Brothers people like Fortet people like Caribou um you know they all put out records in 2010 that came out at a time where I was like learning how to produce when I, when I bought Logic and I would just like figure out try to like make sounds on my computer and it took me a long time to not hate those sounds. But so I I had been thinking a lot about how all these artists were like intertwining electronic music and songs over it um in, in the same like song. It would be these like kind of like unnatural sounds with a natural voice, whether it would be like, you know, chopped vocals in the case of like Fortet or like, you know, features in the case of Chemical Brothers or like, you know, singing over your own beats and stuff like Caribou what I wanted to do with my record is I wanted to make a record, the first one, the names, where it went as purely as possible into electronic music. I wanted there to be just a seven-minute techno song. There's not a single natural sound on it. And then I wanted to go as far possible as I could in, like, a pop or, like, you know, uh rock direction and have, like, a song that's all natural it's all familiar sounds it's guitar bass drums vocals piano and i wanted them to live on the same record and i wanted it to make sense so that was kind of like the broadest idea that i had going into the record um i knew i wanted it to be instrumental for a long period of time and then i love the idea of like a voice kind of emerging from from nowhere so that that was the main idea that was the starting point that was the deliberateness um and then in terms of, like, filling in the blanks, writing all the songs, figuring out all the sounds, that's all the intuition. And that's, yeah, that, that was how that, that like, the, the process of making that record was. And it was, you know, I, I played everything on that record, unlike this record. Yeah, it's, it's I, I, I feel like I achieved what I set out to with that one to, like, you know, the best of my abilities at that time. So for this for this new group of
1: songs for Dead Hand Control, like, you know, as you've alluded to that, you you know, not you didn't play all the instruments on this. You had what were the ways in which you wanted to approach this differently? And obviously, I know that you, although it's just coming out now, this was recorded before COVID and you had no idea.
0: Yeah, I wonder, like when I'm posting footage of like uh, Greta and uh, Sasha singing, if people think I'm just flouting COVID protocols when the videos are from like summer of 2019. I hope not. I don't think anyone is. But, um, yeah, with this record, I just wanted to take as much time as possible with it. Um, I I kind of knew I would be very busy with Father of the Bride stuff, so I had these ideas kind of starting around 2017 of what I wanted to make the record about. I had, like, heard read about the concept of dead hand control, um, which is where, in your will, you try and control... You give your assets to a person, and after death, you try and control what that person does with your assets. Like, an example would be um, MCA of the Beastie Boys when he passed away in his will it said no Beastie Boys songs in commercials that's one example one famous example of dead hand control and it's very like uh difficult to enforce in in like uh in in courts and stuff like that and then i was familiar with dead hand which is this rumored soviet nuclear system that if it detected a nuclear attack in the soviet union it would nuke america in response and it's like a computer it's also called perimeter and apparently it still exists so that's something that you're blowing my, give, you're you blowing little, my mind. give you a little stress but I just I was thinking about what I as an individual can control what we all can control. I was thinking about the, the poetry of the turn of phrase dead hand control um, and kind of like reckoning with our own mortality and uh, the the limit of control. When I'm dead, I'm not actually going to be able to control anything. I'm gonna be dead. Um, and it's in a way a futile exercise I think to to try and do otherwise but so I was thinking about these concepts and I then I would just like kind of gather ideas come up with um, ideas for songs a song title pops in my head like endless me endlessly just like a turner phrase that I like it just popped into my head one day it's like okay I like that turner phrase I want to make a song using that turner phrase and then I just it's it's an exercise I do a lot when I when I make music where it's like I come up with a song title, and then I imagine what that song would sound like. And I did that a lot on this record. Probably five of the eight songs were that way. And I just, um, I don't know, I, I wrote it. I, in in the middle of all this, I moved from London to Los Angeles um, in early 2018. I uh, started building out a studio with my bandmate Chris Thompson. We took over Mario C., the Beastie Boys producer's space in Eagle Rock. We call our studio CNC Music Factory after the great 90s group. And... Just building the studio and like having a professional studio in a space where I could leave my house and go there um, and just be there all day, it was it was just different from from how I've worked on solo music before. I took the music with me when I went to London, like on tour with Vampire Weekend. I work with a uh, engineer, uh, a guy by the name of John Foyle. I've worked with him on all my solo records where I sing, and um, he like we, we got to work in Damon Albarn's studio for two days because Damon was on tour with The Good, The Bad and The Queen. And, you know, he's one of my favorite songwriters of all time. Speaking of gorillas, like one of the songs, I definitely am using the same synth as uh, the track on Melancholy Hill because, like, I just plug, you know, turn on Damon's synth and see the sounds and see what he had up. It was very, very fun for me as a huge fan of his. It was my favorite two days I've, like, ever spent recording music. And I just, yeah, I, I just, I, I did it. Most of the recording was done around vampire weekend touring so i would come home like i I came home from a european tour in july of 2019 and then i recorded my friend robbie he played drums all over the record and i recorded uh greta and and buzzy lee who uh both sing on sing all the backups on the record i don't know i just it was this i would have thought about it for a year and then i would have worked on it for about 18 months and the the benefit of doing it around touring is that like i would have I'd be home for a week. I'd say, I want to get this done while I'm home for this week because I know I'm going to not be home after that. Then I would go off on tour, and while I was on tour, I could both think about what I had done in that week I was home and plan for like the next time I would be home for a week and what I would want to achieve. So it just it was the longest I've spent making a record, definitely. Circling back
1: to where we started um, with uh, this the subject of things that you're passionate about and, and deeply interested in and also touching on the note of how you took your LSATs and now there's an interlude of time when maybe there's there's no shows for a minute. I mean, do you ever think about some later phase of life where there's something that you would like to do, either for money or just for pleasure? But that's totally different from this. Like when you when you look at like old Bayo, like what are some things you could imagine yourself getting into that you haven't had the time or energy to do yet?
0: Um, I do think that. I mean i've enjoyed um i've been spending a lot of time in oregon so i've been enjoying like outdoorsy uh shit i've been going on these incredible hikes um i was never like a big hiker but i love hiking i went kayaking for the first time in my life recently i i like that shit um i don't know if i'm gonna keep pursuing this i feel a little weird about it but i've been taking i took two golf lessons (laughs) which uh is not something i ever thought i would i would do but uh we'll we'll see it's a little it's a, it's a little uh little weird but i had fun i liked hitting the ball so uh and i have a lot of friends who do it if i were to like I, I do think about having a different career and like i do actually think about going to law school i think that um as i follow the news obsessively and um kind of like the legal side of everything that is happening in our country i've found a lot of interest very specifically in the um civil rights division of the department of justice which is does very very important work in this country in terms of like prosecuting hate crimes and things like that and uh you know it's something that i've read about and i'm interested in uh will i end up getting a jd and going into some kind of public service or being some kind of defense attorney Uh, i kind of doubt it but it's it's something that i think about from time to time Yes, either that, or you're going to go the
1: Bill Murray route and become a semi-professional golfer. <laughs> have you have you watched the Tiger Woods documentary? I haven't.
0: Yet? I've been. T- I, now that I've taken my two golf lessons, I like text my friends who are into golf, and they're all like, "Yeah, you should watch it." Yeah, it's like the the where I'm spending a lot of time. It's just like golf country. People just fucking golf here, and since I'm here, I'm like, okay, I might as well try this golf thing out. I, I really never. Like, my temperament is, is really not... I mean, I'm, I'm laid back and stuff, but, like, the kind of, like, frustrating frustration of, like, even mini-golf, like, stresses me out. So, um, if we're gonna... I, I, I don't know if I'm gonna keep pursuing it. I even feel weird. I, I, I think it's important to go on the record about this. I feel a little weird about it. It's, like, the most, like, <laughs> uncomfortable I've been in the, like, hour and a half we've been talking, right? Oh, no! No, 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 it's fine, because you know, we, we did a little catch-up beforehand. The reason... The reason I mentioned though the Tiger documentary is
1: you know kind of the opposite like I don't know anything about golf and I know so little about it that I didn't know oh everyone knows Tiger Woods was a child prodigy or something I mean I just heard of Tiger Woods when he was a superstar athlete in the late 90s you know Yeah. but it I didn't know I didn't know his whole childhood story and it's fascinating and his the relationship with his father but also just like in terms of excellent documentary filmmaking it made me really interested in golf it made me like the it's a sports documentary so it's edited so that there is our suspenseful golf moments and it really like it made me think like oh wow i can't believe i just had this many emotional reactions to golf scenes or something. <laughs> yeah yeah yes. yeah so i say go further go to, listen
0: Chris, if you're gonna do golf, do it like you do burnt. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. Well, one of my one of my friends that I talk to about burnt every day, he was like super, super uh, supportive. He he golf's and he and he loves it. But and I, it does seem like I think there is kind of like a musician's underground of musician golfers. Oh, I, like my friend, um, my friend Gordon. I guess I won't say where he lives, but he goes golfing every day on this golf course in Los Angeles nearby where he lives, and he often plays with. Kurt Cobain's uh, childhood hero, King Buzzo. So, oh wow! You know, with the big shock of white hair, he's like a a very big golfer. And I think that there's more, there's more, more of us out there, more potential. Me being one of us, potentially, I've had two lessons so far.
1: Yeah, no, I get it. I think people associate golf with something like elitist, but yes. also. In this time when everyone's getting more comfortable with being out in the middle of nowhere, the idea of just being kind of alone with your stick and a ball <laughs> in, a, in a giant green field, you know, where you're just like, I just like hitting the tiny ball with the long stick alone in the yes. middle of nowhere. Yeah. That's, also, exactly. that's still called golf. <laughs> also, do you know Cam Avery, who plays with Tame Impala? You know, I, I've never met him, him, but yeah, I know he's, him. Totally. He's, he could tell you where all of the... <laughs>
0: Underground golf is happening. Oh, you got something. an you got an in for the uh, indie rock golf mafia. <laughs> okay, the IGM, that's
1: good <laughs> the indie golf mafia.
0: Yeah, yeah, the IGM.
1: <laughs> well, that seems like a perfect place for us to conclude,
0: Chris. All thank right. Thank you so much, Jenny. Thank you so much for having me. This is an absolute pleasure.
1: Love that guy. Thanks again to Chris Beau, and thank you again for listening. That brings us to the end of episode fifty-seven of LSQ. Uh, episode 58, out in a few weeks, features individual interviews with each of the members of the Houston Trio Krungbin. Excited to share that one. And if you haven't already subscribed, consider doing that. And you can reach me with feedback on Twitter, at JennyLSQ. I'll talk to you next time.